Paul writes uh, the first chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter on resurrection. Um, he says, and I'm going to just, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read, and then I may stop and make a couple of comments. I don't have a lot of extensive notes, so we're going to be kind of reading flying from the hip from the text. But Paul says this, he says, now I make known to you, brethren. Notice that little phrase, brethren, means that he's writing to believers, the church, he's talking to people like us who know the Lord. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. The gospel uh, is just a common garden variety word meaning good news. The church, because it's used so much in the Bible, is sort of become adopted into the church so that it's more than just good news. It's good news that reflects kind of a formula uh, information of truth, how people can come to God. I have a bracelet on here that has these five or six beads in different colors. And these colors you can use as a track to share what we call the gospel with people and lead them to faith. And uh, in that sense, we have reduced much of the work of Jesus Christ to a formula so that we can share with people and give a, a brief message that helps them to understand what Christ has done and how they can come and repent of their sin and trust in Christ and be saved. And we, we call that the gospel. Technically speaking, the gospel really doesn't begin in Matthew, it begins in Genesis 1. And the entire Bible is about God and about God's coming and working in the hearts and the lives of men so that everything in the scripture is to be called good news. And so in one sense, you could enlarge that to say everything that Paul says is the gospel, but particularly as we get into this text here, he's kind of zeroing in on the things dealing with the salvation that Christ has provided. So he says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach. Notice that throughout this text, the emphasizes what he has proclaimed, what he has preached. This is what he's doing, Paul is doing, what I'm doing, when he stood before the people and he proclaimed truth from God, the things that Christ has done in his preaching, and that this is very important. He told Timothy, remember we, we talked earlier, that he told Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, to communicate the word. So here he says, this is the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received so that the message that he preached, the things that he preached, they received. They didn't just turn up and walk out, close up their books and say goodbye, but they received it, which also you stand so that the message is not something that's just a one-time information that you, it's nice to put in the back of your mind and you enjoy it and now you're gone, but it is a message that has an impact on your continued walk, your continued life. Uh, and it, it gives you strength so that you can stand and rest in that and profit in that message. And so it's the gospel I preached in which you have received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So here is this aspect of the gospel, saved or delivered, delivered from ourself, delivered from God's wrath, uh, delivered from sin. And he says, by these things, this, this gospel message that I preach, which you receive, and in which you stand, and by which you're saved. But notice, if you hold fast the word which I preach, there it is again, preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Paul is going to use that word vain. The English word is translated in the English word vain three or four times in this text. But here he's talking about the gospel that they received. 
And he says that it saves you and delivers you if you did not believe in vain, unless you believed in vain. And that just leads me to say this and kind of launch me on, the, on what we're looking at, and that is it's possible to believe and yet not really believe to be a saving believer, to be have it change your heart and your life. And I'm going to, I know that you're thinking of the illustration that came to my mind, and it's throughout the scripture many times we're talking about if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be said. So Paul told the Philippian jailer, you remember in the, in the jail in Philippi, the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can use that as a formula, and we can, we can be sitting on the plane, and we can tell somebody, you know, if you just believe the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. But you got to, you, you have to take into context Paul and Silas in that jail. The jailer, in the Philippian jailer, was desperate. <coughs> the man sitting next to you on the plane is not desperate. He's sitting there waiting for you to finish talking to him. There is a difference in what the people have in their heart and their mind. If you think about that jailer, he was told to take Paul and Silas and lock them in the inner prison and to keep them secure. They were prisoners that were definitely to be secure. So he took them into inner jail. He put them in stocks, which means your hands and your feet were tied down and your head, and you're bent over double. It's a very uncomfortable place and position. And not only is it an uncomfortable position, but you're getting cramps and stuff like that. So it's very, very uncomfortable. This jailer is treating these men, these prisoners rough, and he's bringing them in, and yet their response is a response of being gentle and kind and love. And after he had them in jail, what did they do? They sang and prayed, and they were praising God all the way up to midnight. And it says the prisoners heard them, but the jailer heard them too. And he was witnessing to them, and he saw this, and he saw this response, and so on and so forth. He finally fell asleep. And about midnight, there was an earthquake that came, and the chains and the stocks were all opened up, and the prisoners were free to go. And you know, the Romans... They have a pretty severe punishment for their soldiers. When, they have, when you have a guard and you're guarding a prisoner, and that prisoner escapes, you are responsible for paying the penalty that he was going to pay. In this case, he would be in the stocks, and he'd be pretty bad off. And so he had pulled out his, he saw the doors open. He knew they were gone. He pulled out his sword to take his own life. When Paul yelled out of the darkness, don't do yourself any harm. You're still here. And that really cut to his heart. And his heart had been sensitive. He had been hearing. And so the Lord began to speak to his heart. And in desperation, he cried, what, what do I have to do to be saved? You see what I'm saying? There's a difference between the information he had and just general information. His heart was prepared. So when I say here, the, the passage says that we have to believe. It, it is believe, but it is more than just casual intellectual assent. It is trusting in and hoping in and really relying on Christ. And so this is important. And I just want to talk about that, that how we, what we do with the things that God has given to us and how life treats us and how we respond to that makes a big difference. Paul goes on to say, for I delivered to you as first importance also what I received. And here it is. Here's the gospel reduced. Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. He didn't just die as a victim. He didn't just die as, a, as an expression of love. He died as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. That's number one. He died for our sin. 
which is according to the scripture. By the way, he's going to say that two or three times according to the scripture, which tells us that it's not just my opinion or Paul's opinion. It's what God says in his word that matters. That's the foundation of truth. That's the anchor. That's the proof that this is truth. If the scripture says it and it's, it agrees with the context, we can put it down and, and, and take it to the sword. So he died according to, for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried means he was definitely dead and he was buried and he was raised and this is our subject he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared and he goes on to list a bunch of people Cephas and the 12 and appeared to more than 500 brethren one time so on and so forth so you have here the gospel where he died he was buried he was raised and then he appeared to the disciples afterwards and he kind of summarizes this as part of what you have trusted and believed and then he's going to talk about the resurrection. I'm going to skip over the text in the interest of time, but he makes it clear in, in uh, passages like verse 14 that the resurrection is a very essential part of the gospel. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, which Paul says, I've been preaching and proclaiming, our preaching is in vain. There's that word vain again. And your faith is also vain. So here is the message, the gospel is possible to believe, he says, and not be saved, but if you embrace these things, an integral part of that gospel is the fact that Christ is raised from the dead. I want to just jump over to the very end of the chapter and then launch out into the subject that we were looking at, and that is the very last verse, summarizing the reality of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection, the fact that it's a very essential part of the gospel, he says, because of this, therefore, my beloved brethren, verse 58, be steadfast. What does steadfast mean? It means to be persistent, to be uh, faithful, to not to be wavering back and forth. Be steadfast and immovable. Don't be, well, you know, I am. I'm easily sometimes distracted and going one direction and then stop. And maybe want to go in this direction and then stop, and maybe want to go in that direction, kind of flying by the seat of my pants, so to speak. He says here, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice what he says, knowing that your toil or your labor is not in that's that word again, vain, not in vain in the Lord. So, and that's because. There is a reality of the resurrection and the reality of the suffering, salvation that God has provided, and that there is a life after this, and we have the proof of that by the resurrection. So the point that I want to labor and look at for a moment is this resurrection is being part of the motivation for us, for the Christian life. How we live is really important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to be running in 1 Corinthians and Romans 6 in Colossians for just a few minutes, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, but back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this ought to be basic information and so much of what, what we we deal with in our relationship with the Lord has to do with what we know and then how we apply what we know to our lives. And so do you not know, do you not understand, do you not grasp that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not be saved. The unrighteous will not. 
And then he begins to enlarge that just a little bit. Do not be deceived. And we stop there for just a moment. We ask if, if you're doing the Bible study, so when the why does he say not be deceived? Maybe he says that because they need to lose some weight. They're trying to walk weight. He says, don't be deceived. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe he says that because they need to have a better diet. They need to eat some. Oh, that probably doesn't make any sense either. Maybe he says that because they're deceived. That makes good sense, doesn't it? He says, do not be deceived because here's an area which we're easily deceived. Fornicators, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When he uses these phrases, just like if he uses the word a drunkard or something, he's not, he's not saying if a person's taking a drink, a drink of alcohol. I've had alcohol before. That's not what he's saying. He's saying a person whose life is characterized by drinking. My dad had that problem for a while. Or I think Revelation says that all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. Who's a liar? Everybody in here is lying. Everyone. I know that for sure. I, know, I have too. Does that mean that I'm going to take my place in the lake of fire? What is he saying? A person is characterized as a liar who is habitually lies and just Lies and lies and lies. That's the characteristic. So here, these terms describe people, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. People whose lives are characterized like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul prefaces that by saying, don't be deceived. They will not. So it, it, it's, a, it's an argument to tell us that it does matter to see how we live, what characterizes our life. Some of you, such were some of you, by the way, and isn't that wonderful? Such were some of you. All right, then let's just, we'll pick on homosexual. That's a big one right now, and people don't like to talk about that, but let's just pick on, we have somebody who's a homosexual. I know several people that, that were that good friends of mine that are homosexual. He said, such were, here's a person who's a homosexual. He comes to Christ. He now breaks with that sinful lifestyle, he repents of his sin, he becomes a believer. He's no longer a homosexual. He's now a follower of Christ, and he's living for Christ, he's putting Christ first. The gospel changes a person's life. It changes a person's activity. It changes a person's pattern. It may not, there may be some who may lapse back. A person, I've lied since I've been saved. Probably you have too. May have even stolen something since I've been saved. And you call me a thief. Um, but what I'm saying is the gospel impacts the life, and that's the point. You understand what I'm saying? We're, we're saved. It makes a difference in how we live, and that's what we're saying. Such were some of you, but you're washed. You are sanctified. That means you're set apart for God. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So what I want to say to you and what I'm trying to relate to you here is that the gospel is to impact a person's life. Way he lives. It does matter how we live. Romans 6, quickly. Uh, Romans 6 is a passage in which uh, Paul is talking about sanctification. Um, in Romans 5, he's talked about the fact that we're justified by faith and now we have peace with God. And um, the argument could be made. That since we are forgiven and sanctified and cleansed and justified by faith, and we have peace with God, 
that we can pretty much live how we want to live and it doesn't matter. And since God's grace is magnified and God's grace is set up on a pedestal because God's grace is able to forgive us of our wicked, sinful heart, that when we sin, it, it kind of elevates God's grace and shows the magnificence of his grace. Therefore, we can sin, we can enjoy that, and at the same time, it, it amplifies God's grace. So the question could be say, raised, is it all right to go ahead and keep sinning so that it magnifies God's grace and so that it sets them apart? And Paul answers that question there at the very beginning of Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And the answer is, may it never be. Absolutely not. You cannot do that. And then he gets this, goes, starts going into this reasoning. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, we're getting into some things that are a little bit difficult hard to understand that at first, but when he said we who died to sin, this is the event that took place when we came to Christ. We, if we came to him and we, and we mean business with him, we are really united with Christ and, uh, and at the point of conversion. And at that point, we died to sin and we became alive to God. I remember when I was first saved, I used to be a big fan of Playboy magazine and uh, read it, uh, had a bunch of them. And uh, after I was saved, I knew then that I should not read them, indulge in them or whatever. I still can remember some of the jokes that I read in those things and stuff, but it's a bunch of garbage. And I can still, but the thing is that after I was saved, it bothered me to look at the magazines. Before it didn't, before I indulged in it. And if I could get some other ones, I would get other ones, other ones, others. But after I was saved, it bothered me. And it bothered me that I still, in my lust, enjoyed looking at it. You see what I'm saying? And that's because now I was alive to God and knew that I was having to turn away from this. And yet I didn't want to. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference that takes place in the heart. Of a person, and so what he's saying is, how shall we who died, and that is a that is a fact that we in fact did die to sin, even though we still have that that old nature inside of us. How shall we who died to sin live in it still? I mean, if we have if if Christ has set us free so that we don't have to do it, how is it that we're going to continue to do it? Or do you not know? Notice the word know that the word know and knowing and believe and consider things that have to do with your man, your mind. All are in this text. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Here again, uh, this passage, it really, to me, looks like he's talking first about physical baptism, where you're buried with Christ in baptism, you're raised again into walking newness of life. And uh, the, most scholars don't accept that. And I, too, know that baptism has no merit whatsoever. For salvation we can be baptized every day in water or whatever you do and it has no difference you still die and go to hell and it doesn't get you into heaven i think what he's talking about here and i agree with MacArthur at that point i think is that he's talking about being united with christ there is this this identification that we go through in baptism that is this uh identification that's what he's saying here he's talking about being identified with christ i want to give you kind of a parallel verse to just substantiate that there, and that is found over in chapter 10. You don't need to turn to it, but in chapter 10, Paul says, I did, 
I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Let me back up now, I've got to go through that verb. Paul says here, I do not want you to be unaware. Again, I want you, I want you to, to, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, that our fathers, he's talking about the Jewish fathers and the Jewish people, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud is that cloud that led them by day by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. You have coming out of Egypt, you have tons and tons and tons of families, heads of households, children, wives, all kinds of animals running around. They're called the sons of Israel, the descendants of Israel, the children of Jacob or whatever. They're coming out many, many families and they all come over under there following the cloud, they're, they are going through the Red Sea. And this verse says here, and they were all baptized under Moses. And I think what that's saying is that they were all united as they went through the sea into the cloud with Moses leading, they became more than just a bunch of families, they became a nation. They were united, so to speak, under Moses and they became a nation. And I think that's what he's saying. They were baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they were united under that leadership. Now, they're still families, but they are now children of a nation as they come out. Do you see what I'm saying? That's, that's what I think he's saying here when he talks about in this passage here. All of us have been united with Christ, that have been united with Christ, have been united in his death. Therefore, and that's in place of the word baptism, that's just what it means. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised, this is the resurrection from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the unison of life. Here's that, that identification. And um, I hope I'm not struggling too hard to try to explain this. It's, it's difficult. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. We came to Christ. We died to self. There's this sense in which we were buried with him through baptism not through physical baptism, but through that identification with death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. That walk has to do with daily living, step by step, walk in newness of life. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, likeness tells us that uh, as he died to sin, or he died to self-centeredness, he died to his own passions and gave himself over to the Father in obedience, we too do that. We die to self and we are alive unto God. And that's what he's saying. Dead to the glory of the Father so that we might walk in newness of life. Or if we had become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, again, here is his mind, knowing this, that our old self, this old unregenerate self, was crucified him died with him in order that the body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin that's what he's saying it breaks the enslavement of sin we still sin and if we continue to follow sin the bible says that you become the slave of the one you obey we, we that enslavement has been broken but he who has died is free from sin now if we have died with christ we believe there it again, there's that word. We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing, there it is again in the mind, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never again, never to die again. Death no longer shall be mastered over him, and that should be true of us as well.
that should not be master over us. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, here it is again, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Does that make sense? So you want to, want to, want to recognize that when we came to Christ, we died to sin, we're now alive to God, and we want to practice that in our walk with him. The resurrection is what makes that possible. Colossians says, for well, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be, be revealed with him in glory. This is Colossians 3, 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you once walked when you were living in them. But now, you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside or you put off the old self with its evil passions and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so this passage here then tells us, Paul says that the resurrection is a critical part of the gospel message. The life of Christ enables us to live the life of Christ here. We don't want to believe in vain. We want to put that into practice. That last verse where he talks about that then, beloved, my Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. We have that victory in Christ in the resurrection. We have the power of the resurrected Christ in us. We died to sin when we came to Christ. We keep wanting to, at least I do find that the sin still sometimes wants to knock on my door and attract me, and sometimes I give in to it. It's there. It's attracting me. Yet the life of Christ is there, and I have been made alive to him, and I'm very thankful for that. So, he is alive. He's alive in us. We're thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. This is a lot, I know, even in these few moments, but I do thank you for the life of Christ, for the Savior who gave his heart, his life, his body for me, and uh, that he paid the price my sin in his own body on the tree, there is that magnificent exchange on the cross in which the righteous, holy Son of God was treated on the cross as I should be treated, so that I, wicked, self-centered, arrogant, sinful person, might be treated by God as he, his son, is treated. So I thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. I pray your blessing upon this day. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And for those listening who don't know you, Lord, I ask you to work in our hearts. Help us to spend time with you and your word to get to know you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Thanksgiving. Amen.